Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Dan Liebenson. Dan is the founder and president of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future and co-host of the popular Judaism Unbound podcast. He served as both the director of new initiatives at Harvard Hillel and as executive director of the University of Chicago Hillel. Dan has published a variety of articles and books and chapters on Yiddish innovation. He's currently working on a book about the future of American Judaism, as well as a book series collecting the most important ideas from the first four years of interviews on the Judaism Unbound podcast. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here, and really fun to turn the mic on you, as it were, um, (laughs) as a podcaster with quite uh, an astounding, enviable audience. So I'm glad that you could join me today to talk about an upcoming series that you're going to be running on Judaism Unbound. But before that, um, let's just talk about what led you to launch the podcast and um, sort of what the thinking was behind it and where you're at with it at this point. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's hard to, uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like it's uh, ages ago. when I think it really, as good things do, I think it flowed out of our own need that Lex and I, my co-host Lex and I, felt that we had a sense that Judaism was changing and Judaism should change, but we didn't really know exactly how it was going to be changing. And we wanted to write a book and felt stuck at a certain point that we didn't quite have the book and we still only had the impulse of what was happening. And so we decided that we needed to do more research and we thought it would be fun to do it in the form of a podcast and kind of share our explorations with a wider audience. We didn't have any sense that it would be this large of an audience. And, um, and I think that we just have found that Actually, it's that orientation, which is incredibly sincere, that we're learning ourselves and we're working out our ideas out loud, that that's actually something that's attractive to people, that it's not, here's what you should know, or here's how you have to think about it, but it's really just an invitation to a project of trying to think this stuff through together, that, again, it wasn't really our intent, but it's turned out to be pretty effective. I think that's what's so exciting about podcasts, in a way, is that conversations can go in directions that you might not have anticipated. Absolutely. Um, And you have the luxury of, if I can um, ascribe a print uh, word to it, you have long-form podcasts, which is great. Right, and we're not fixed to any particular length. There's no commercial breaks that have to happen at a very particular time so that the arc of the story has to be told in a very particular way. And it just allows us, or it has allowed us to just explore. And and that really, you know, we, I've been making the analogy for, for a long time that we are a generation analogous to the desert generation, the Jews that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years between Egypt and the promised land, and that that wandering metaphorically is actually a essential part of getting from one place to another. You know, I think we have the myth of the visionary who knows exactly where we're going, but I think that that story actually captures a deeper truth, which is that, yeah, there's some vision and there's some attempt to, to do some pathfinding and some direction setting, but the wandering is not only necessary. It's not only something that, you know, happens inevitably, but it's actually a really good thing because it's in that wandering and in that not knowing exactly that you find some of the most exciting possibilities. 
yeah, and I think also the sort of whole history of debating and exploring and questioning um, and having conversations runs deep in, in Judaism. <laughs> Um, so I know we connected Susan Bronson, the Yiddish Book Center's executive director. Um, you you were in touch um, as you learned about, and we extended an invitation to a lot of organizations to partner with the Yiddish Book Center. We've, we're launching a new um, initiative in our 40th year, which is uh, 2020, and that's the Yiddish Book Center's Decade of Discovery, which really aims to sort of foster a deeper understanding of Yiddish and modern culture in the country. And we're launching this initiative in partnership with a lot of other organizations and entities. Um, we're going to be holding special events and conferences and cor uh, different courses, exhibits, etc., on and on. Um, and we're really excited that Judaism Unbound will be partnering with us as part of the Decade of Discovery. So. Each, each year, as you know, and I'll just explain this for our listeners, um, we'll be focusing on a different topic. And in this inaugural year, the topic is Yiddish in America, Cultural Encounters. And you're going to be launching a series about this and under that umbrella. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the thoughts you have about that, um, how it relates to Judaism Unbound, and let's go from there. Yeah, I think there are three things that at least intrigued me in the in the initial conversations and thinking about doing this. One was really just this exploratory quality of Judaism Unbound that I'm not really sure what the role of Yiddish in the future is. Uh, does it have one? What should it be? Um, you know, we have an impulse that it does, that it's certainly an area that's generating a lot of interest. And in the true spirit of Judaism Unbound, we just wanted to explore that with some of the people that are thinking about it and, and see what comes up. I, I think a second piece that was intriguing is that Yiddish seems to be something that's of a lot of interest these days to the younger younger people. And my co-host is, is about 20 years younger than me and is more of the generation of folks who are really captivated, I think, by Yiddish these days. I think it started, or I don't know what it started exactly, but I know that my generation, Gen X, had some of the early folks who were you know, coming to the Yiddish Book Center, actually, in its early years, and, and then going into careers in uh, Yiddish academia and otherwise. And, and now it feels like it's captured the imagination of the young people in an even bigger way. And so I, I think that, again, that's something that we wanted to explore is what's really going on when young people who may not even have grandparents that were native Yiddish speakers are, are really finding this to be something that they're passionate about. And the third piece, which is really significant for me, is some kind of impulse that, that I have that what was going on in, let's say, the heyday of the secular Yiddish world of Europe that was destroyed in the Holocaust was actually the kind of first flowering of an attempt to find a secular version of Judaism that would be deep and resonant and that would be grounded in the deep culture of what Judaism had been for the previous 2,000 years in a more religious way, and that those explorations were cut short. And then I think that for various reasons in America, Yiddish was seen as the realm of the survivors and the people who came from that world, but wasn't really seen as the building blocks out of which some kind of new American Judaism might emerge. And I think that there's potentially an opportunity here for a tikkun, for a repair, for a, a going back to trying to figure out what was going on in Europe in that 
secular Yiddish world before the war and to see if we can somehow try to start rebuilding on that foundation here in America. And some of that has to do with Yiddish as a language, and some of it has to do with Yiddish as a, I don't know, sensibility. And, and that's where actually some of my work has been in translation from Hebrew to English. And so I'm very intrigued by this whole concept of translation and what does it mean to um, have a, a large part of our cultural productivity in a particular language that realistically most of us are not going to speak in the future, and yet that that can necessarily can nevertheless be really significant to what's going to happen in the future. So those are kind of the angles that at least I'm coming in to this uh, thinking about, and it's uh, it has been interesting in the conversations that we've already uh, recorded in the series, and and the ones that we're hoping to record in the in the next few weeks are, are starting to scratch at some of those things. So it's been really interesting and exciting for me. You mentioned the difference in age between you and your co-host Lex, and I was listening to an interesting episode of yours in which you're both talking about um, that sort of, I guess, can I call it a generational divide or mm. just a, it, in the difference in perspective and the difference in engagement um, and sort of uh, what each of each generation has a different takeaway or take on aspects of Jewish culture and certainly Yiddish culture in their modern Jewish culture. And so I wonder if you and Lex went back and forth a little bit in terms of that relationship with Yiddish culture and how it informs modern Jewish culture. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still sorting that out. We, t we typically do a kind of wrap-up episode after the end of a series where we it's just the two of us and we try to go deep into some of those kinds of questions. We haven't actually sat down and done that yet, so... I'm not sure exactly what we're going to find in that. You know, I think that there's two things that come up when we're talking about people that are some substantial number of years apart from one another in age. One is generational. It's like, are there things that are particular that Gen X does as a generation versus what the millennials do as a generation? And then there are also elements where it's not necessarily generational, but it's more about life stage. So what is somebody who's in their late 40s, early 50s, you know, that has teenage children? How is that person different from a person who is in their late 20s or early 30s and doesn't have children yet? And, you know, what are the, the ways in which we're thinking about the world differently that may or may not be generational? I think with Yiddish, what's been interesting to me is to see that I think in my generation, the interest in Yiddish has been more about the language, more about understanding the culture, the European culture from which Yiddish came. And I think that in the millennial generation, there seems to be this, this passion about Yiddish as, and its connections to the left, and that somehow Yiddish can be alive in a very real way in, let's say, American millennial culture, millennial Jewish culture in a way that, that I, I don't think people in my generation really even imagined. And it's interesting because maybe then my generation, Gen X, is this kind of sandwich generation because for my grandparents, it was everything. And in a way, for Lex's generation, it's also everything in a certain way. Um, you know, and, and that's something that I'm grappling with and thinking about. You know, maybe my generation is actually the one that didn't have a chance to really 
have Yiddish be a substantial part of our experience, and, and I think we're the poorer for it. I think it could be an expansive conversation because with each generation there's a different set of circumstances um, that inform or impose themselves on why we engage or don't engage or why we are or aren't curious. Um, and I also think we're at in a really interesting place right now where with all that you know, digitization and um, time period, et cetera, are allowing us all, all these organizations, to make so much information and so much right. cultural production available that we have that amazing luxury now of saying, all right, let's explore it, let's unearth it, and let's sort of regenerate it, reimagine it. Um, that's, it's very heady in a way. Yeah, and I, and I think that it, it's fascinating to understand the incredible impact of of one project, one organization, in, in making that happen. I mean, who knows what would have happened if the Yiddish Book Center had never been created, but it was created and has been the, the driving force behind a lot of what's happened. And, you know, it, it's really, that's another part that's so interesting to me in this whole project, because a lot of what we're trying to, to explore as Judaism Unbound is to say, yeah, the Jewish world is this huge, thing, and there are all these different institutions, and they're going in a million different directions. A lot of them we don't like that much, and we don't find compelling. And we have this sense that, right, that, that there could be a different Judaism that could be created in the future. And it's amazing to see how one project has the potential to really steer the ship in a different direction. Uh, you know, you could call that a trim tab or... Um, whatever metaphors you want to use. But it, it's really just the story of the Yiddish Book Center itself and the result of Yiddish, be, be, of Yiddish taking a more prominent place in the, in the development of a new generation of American Jews is, is extremely, it makes me extremely optimistic about what we and, and others might be able to achieve, even though our projects are, are really small today. And, and talking to Aaron Lansky and reading his book about those early days when he was just driving around the country in a van, um, you know, going up and down stairs and meeting people and having tea with them and taking their Yiddish books out of their house. And, and to think of what that has all led to is pretty astonishing. Well, without a spoiler alert, um, may I ask you either to talk topically or to talk um, about the different people that you're interviewing for part of this series in terms of how that sort of comes together in building that narrative arc, as it were. Yeah, well, you know, we're still in the process of building it. It's really interesting. For better or worse, our method is to, you know, both our method of how we record an individual episode and then our, our method as to how we build a series or a narrative arc tends to be, if we can pull it off, to, to record the whole series in advance and then or more or less in advance, and then try to line things up so that they tell a particular story. I'm not sure that we're fully there yet, but we have talked to Aaron Lansky, just as the person who kind of started it all in a certain way, and that's going to be our first episode. And then we're talking to a series of mostly, on the young side, uh, academics and social activists and musicians and translators and folks who are involved in one or another aspect of 
Yiddish in America today. And, um, you know, what's fascinating is, is that we've talked with some of the people already about is how their work on Yiddish, uh, their professional work on Yiddish is not always or is often not distinguishable from their personal lives. And we know that that's true in other elements, you know, people who are uh, professionals working in the Jewish community. I mean, one of the reasons why you become a Jewish professional is because you have a passion for this thing. And that's true of other professions. But, you know, it's hard to think about how you live your daily life as an economist or a psychologist, you know, might bleed in. But as a Jew, it's very obvious how you might uh, you might be working on that professionally and you might uh, also be living it. And it's actually really interesting to hear that from an element of Jewish culture that I think that we don't necessarily think of as something that permeates your daily life, right? I mean, yes, to a certain extent, we think of a language that way, but especially when we're talking about Yiddish in America today, you know, I don't think that your average person goes in and imagines that people's lives are absolutely infused by Yiddish, and yet they are. And it's been fascinating, for example, to talk to uh, one couple who is raising their child as a native Yiddish speaker. And you know, just exploring that question of uh, why, you know, who are they going to talk to? Um, and yet there's there's a fascinating story there. And it's just really interesting. It's been really interesting to me, for example, to also think about the similarities and differences between what's going on with Yiddish in America today and the early days of secular Zionism 100 years ago. Because then, too, there were these small numbers of people that were raising their children as native Hebrew speakers. And you could say, you know, well, what is that for? You know, who are they going to talk to? And yet, 100 years later, we understand that they were the visionaries on the leading edge. And, and so I think that the people that we're trying to talk to, for the most part in this series, are people who are also, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Apple and Steve Jobs, you know, and how Steve Jobs used to talk about Apple is for the crazy ones and the people who, you know, just sort of don't take no for an answer and have a, have a crazy dream. And, um, and now Apple, you know, is the biggest company in, in the world, and everybody has Apple products, you know. And, and so I'm kind of thinking about this as like those early days of Apple where, you know, we're, we're talking to the crazy ones who just may be onto something. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, it may seem, yeah, it may seem, Interesting to those of us who aren't raising children and speaking Yiddish, etc. But um, no, it's, it, I, I don't. All, all kidding aside, um, I think it's really interesting to see when we call this, you know, Yiddish in America cultural encounters. The way in which understanding this cultural production that happened in Yiddish informs our understanding, I think, of of Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. Do you see that or? Yeah. On, the, on the secular side of things? Well, it's weird because it, it feels to me, and this is something that I didn't come into the series thinking and that now I'm, I'm noodling over, is what do we identify as Yiddish? And what do we identify as maybe cultural encounters with Yiddish? Because I think that we have this natural idea that there are these texts, these traditional Jewish texts that are in Hebrew, the Torah, you know, or Aramaic, the Talmud, you know, whatever old languages these are in. And we don't even bat an eyelash to say, hey, if somebody is writing stories or writing literature or nonfiction that is in some kind of dialogue with those texts, that what they're doing is Jewish. And it's really 
fascinating to think about when it seems it feels to me like for your average American Jew, Yiddish is in a different category where it's like that's a different language. It's yeah, it's a Jewish language, but it's a language that only a few people speak and 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 if you want to say that you're really operating in the world of Yiddish, that means that you must be in some way retro and in some way you're uh, reading and writing in a language that few people speak, as opposed to the possibility that we can imagine a future in which there's a tremendous amount of of writing and thinking and dialogue that may be happening today in English, but that's really a a response to and that holds some of those Yiddish texts as sacred texts. And that's why, and, and I mean sacred in a secular way, but and, and that's why I, I go back to feeling like the project of translation is really critically important in all this. Because I think that it's, it's you know, um, Robert Frost famously said that poetry is what's lost in translation, but as a translator, I also feel that it's the job of a translator to try to make as much of that original material accessible in a meaningful way to people who don't speak that language as humanly possible. And that's the difference between a good translator, a great translator, a poor translator, is the, the degree to which you're able to do that. And so to me, what's really also interesting is that we have this enormous amount of Jewish culture, some of it written, some of it not, that was the product of, I don't know, a thousand years, and very, very little of it is truly accessible to the wider Jewish public and, and isn't really considered as importantly Jewish as various texts that are in Hebrew. And by the way, that's equally true of, of English. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we're big fans of the website Safaria, which is a, a website that is trying to collect all the ancient uh, traditional Jewish texts and make them fully accessible and searchable on the Internet. And I'm really hoping and praying for the day when they're going to add Yiddish texts and English texts and really understand that, that, and I think they do understand it, I think it's a question of resources, but where the world will really understand that there's this tremendous amount of Jewish texts that were written in, in other languages that are essential parts of the Jewish heritage. And how are we going to move ahead with access to that stuff when we don't speak that language. And so I, I think it's interesting to think about Yiddish as both a language that we should study and that we should learn or people should learn and that we should revive in one way or another. But I think it's also a question of how can we really centralize the material, text and cultural material that was for a long time in Yiddish that realistically doesn't have to and probably won't be in Yiddish moving forward, but nevertheless to understand that period in Jewish history as 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 critical and central as, as other areas of which there's no debate. I mean, look, the Talmud was written in another uh, Jewish language that nobody speaks anymore, and nobody's debating whether the Talmud should be a central part of Jewish culture. So I, I think it would be really interesting to imagine a time when various Yiddish works would truly be seen and experienced in that central way. Well, I mean, I certainly think that that um, speaks to our work here at the Yiddish Book Center with our translation initiative, which mm -hmm. is, yeah, training a new generation of literary translators so that um, we can have access to these, you know, 40,000 plus titles that were written for Yiddish speakers and Yiddish readers, um, you know, over a period of about 100 or 150 years. But 
now others of us who need to, you know, need, want to access it, both scholars and readers um, and those curious about the culture are only going to access it in English. So I agree. I mean, this is why it's such an important initiative for us, not only training the translators, but bringing the work to publication um, because it's such a window into understanding that arc of um, Jewish history, um, which lived out in many ways in Yiddish um, in the everyday. So I, I guess um, I was curious to find out, you know, sort of when you set out on this um, and you identified, and I know you're still identifying, those people that you want to interview and some of the conversations you want to have. Um, is there a large question that you're seeking to answer, or have you been surprised, and, and does it morph as you go along? Yeah, I think that I, was, I didn't come into it ex with a particular large question in mind. I, I often don't. It's more of an impulse that there's something here. There's something here to uncover. There's something, in, and maybe that's because we're seeing this energy behind it. You know, I often think about how we should be measuring impact these days. You know, if Judaism is in a time of profound change, then is it the right way to measure impact, how many people are attending something that may be actually in its final days of existing as a Jewish practice, or would it be better to find other ways to measure? And I've always been taken with the measurement of passion, you know, that if we see people that are truly passionate about something, and we think that those people are somehow representative of other people in their generation, you know, they're not just the crazy ones, they're the crazy ones in the sense that they're the avant-garde, they're the leading edge, but they actually represent something that's common in their generation, then I think we have to really look hard at that. And when you look at something like Yiddish, which has so changed its people's sense of what it's about, you know, people, again, right in, in, you know, 40 years ago, thought Yiddish was a dying language and something that was only interesting to old people and, and something that, you know, probably was going to go away and, and probably ought to. And that now we see it as an area where young people are really passionate and are learning and are spending time and are um, doing all kinds of projects that flow out of that, then I think it's something that you have to look at really closely and try to understand what does that mean. And maybe it means something very particular about Yiddish, that you know Yiddish is, is really important. Um, or maybe it means that people are looking for something that they're not finding elsewhere in Judaism, maybe some way of finding secular meaning, but nevertheless deep culture. And maybe Yiddish is only one version of that and and when we see how passionate people are about Yiddish, what that's really telling us is that people are passionately looking for some way to connect with Judaism that's not the traditional way that they grew up uh, understanding w was what they were supposed to do, you know, from their synagogue or whatever Jewish institution they, they grew up most closely in. And so that's, that's still my question. You know, I, I think that um, my, my impulse is that it's both of those, right? You know, that there's something in particular about Yiddish, and, and there's also that the passion about Yiddish is, is telling us that people are looking to have passion about Judaism, but they're not finding it in some of the traditional practices. So, it, so that might mean that we should push more and more people towards an encounter with Yiddish, and that might mean that we should just be more enthusiastic about other experiments. You know, I feel like, again, Aaron Lansky's project 40 years ago seems to me like it was an experiment, and it was actually two experiments at the same time, and one of which has been understood well, right, which is that it turns out that there's a future for Yiddish, 
and the other experiments, and in talking to Aaron, it was really clear that it's also that he and, and the others who are working with him were passionate about Judaism, but looking to express it in a different way. And this happened to be the way that they expressed it. But we know that others 40 years ago, and, and certainly others today, are expressing it in, in other ways around other topics. And that those, you know, if we can imagine, if we can imagine the, you know, if we can take the really surprising thing that happened with Yiddish, because there were some people with great passion and skill, and think about what would it look like if people with similar passion and skill applied that to various other topics in Jewish life that may seem niche or small. And we can really imagine that those are going to grow big, just like Yiddish has under the leadership of the Yiddish Book Center. You know, it, it, it gives one a sense of optimism and excitement about the future of Judaism as opposed to the gloom and doom that we often hear from some of the institutional leadership of institutions that seem to be not capturing people's imagination today. Sure, and I, I think, you know, many of the questions that you ask, I think are interesting things that were considered in the literature that we're finding, you know, by being able to read this in translation. Two books which we brought out, Mendel Mann, Seeds in the Desert, um, and Hirschstab and Nomberg. Their short stories um, really grapple with that idea of modernity and where where is the place of these writers in that world, um, having been brought up in traditional, you know, with traditional Yiddish education and then sort of wanting to broaden their place in a, you know, sort of more cosmopolitan world, and how do they sort of wrestle with that? And it's interesting to read that work, which was published, what, in, you know, the early 20th century and into the mid-20th century to see that we continue to have these conversations, which are important conversations and and certainly interesting ones. So, um, again, let's just go back. Your series, um, which is, again, part of the Decade of Discovery, will be airing on Judaism Unbound beginning in January? Yep, beginning the first Friday in January, which is January 3rd. Wonderful. And can you tell our listeners how to find that? Well, they can go to our website, www.judaismunbound.com, or they can just go to, whether it's iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or any of the podcast apps, and just put in Judaism Unbound into the search box. Actually, usually you can just put Judaism, and it'll be the first one that pops up, and all you do is hit subscribe, and, and you'll get them. Every, every Friday, we actually uh, intentionally release them on Friday morning so that people who don't have a different Shabbat practice might be able to have listening to some Jewish conversation as their Shabbat experience that week. So that's always uh, an option for people. Right. And will there be, um, these will come under the umbrella of one series, or you'll just be posting them over the course of um, a couple of months or something? Well, they're going to be one series in the sense that they're going to be all one right after the other. Mm-hmm. And they will, it will take about um, two months for them to come out because there's seven or eight of them, um, and they come out once a week. So we, uh, we hope that folks will enjoy it, and then if they, uh, if they like the direction that we're taking, they can welcome to stick around and listen to the other topics that we explore. I'm sure they will. Um, <laughs> so many thanks to you, Dan, for taking the time today and to all that you bring to the conversations that you facilitate and host um, on Judaism Unbound. It's really interesting, and I encourage listeners to um, 
listen to the episodes about Yiddish, but also to more broadly tune in to Judaism Unbound, because you wrestle with some interesting, interesting conversations in informed ways. So thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for what you do. It's great to be part of a, a team that's out there trying to do some new and interesting stuff in the Jewish world. Um, well, we are thrilled to have you as part of the Decade of Discovery and look forward to listening to your episodes. All right, take care. Thanks so much. Yep. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.